You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, good morning, Asbury. Good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning, Asbury. It feels like we have been on quite the journey this semester as we have walked through the book of Acts in our encounter series. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the topic, Costly Courage. And to be honest with you, this is not the sermon that I wanted to preach. This summer, as we were dividing up sermons, I intentionally chose not to preach this sermon. Because shocker of all shockers, I knew it was going to be hard. But God has a funny sense of humor, and his plans are always bigger than I can even begin to imagine. So through a series of events, here I am, preaching the one sermon that I felt the least equipped to preach. You see, I would not consider myself a courageous person. And to preach on courage, it has made me come face to face with my fears and insecurities. And let me be the first to tell you, I have them. When I think about courageous people, my mind immediately goes to women and men in the Bible, from Moses to Esther, David, Ruth, Peter, Paul, Jesus. I mean, come on, that lineup is crazy. How do I fit in that lineup? Then on to other courageous women and men, Harriet Tubman, Mother Teresa, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And to be honest with you, I get overwhelmed. How does my life reflect this type of courage? Does my courage really cost me anything? Compared to these women and men, does my courage today even matter? These are the real questions that I have wrestled with over the last several weeks. This sermon did not come easy. It was hard for me. Erwin McManus writes, the history of God's people is not a record of God searching for courageous men and women who could handle the task, but God transforming the hearts of cowards and calling them to live courageous lives. Transforming the hearts of cowards. Now that's something I can relate to. I more often feel like the cowardly lion on the Wizard of Oz. On the outside, I appear to many as strong and brave, but on the inside, my heart is full of fear. But let me be the first one to tell you that the Holy Spirit is transforming this cowardly heart. I'm well aware of the fears and lies I have believed on my way to courage. I don't know about you, but have you ever noticed that the enemy seems to work overtime in our hearts and minds when it comes to fear? It's no wonder that the most frequent command in the Bible is fear not. God knew our propensity to give way to fear and spoke to it directly 365 times. Now, just in case you don't pick that up, that's one for every day of the year. So literally, fear does not get to win a day. Nelson Mandela is quoted saying, courage was not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers the fear. Now, I can look at my life, and hindsight is 20-20. I can see that every step of obedience to God has been a step of courage, even if it did not feel like courage at the time. 
Over the last few weeks, I have witnessed the power of courage in my own life, demonstrated in you all. In my last chapel, I told a story of how God protected me during one of my trips to Central Africa. My desire for sharing this story was to share the power of God to intervene for all people. But in doing so, I unknowingly offended some of our African and African-American students. I am thankful for the courage one of your classmates demonstrated in me in coming to me and sharing his experience. He shared with me how it felt for him to hear that story, how it felt for him to hear Africans portrayed in a negative light, and the fear he experienced not knowing if I or others would see him in that same light. My heart broke and I wept as he shared his experience. The last thing that I would ever want is for him or anyone else to have experienced what he did in that chapel. I have loved my time that I've spent in Uganda in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. The men and women of these two countries have greatly shaped me into who I am today. I love these men and women, and I love you all. To have misrepresented my African friends and to unknowingly hurt some of you all has left me heartbroken. My intent was never to offend or cause harm or to paint Africans in a negative light. For anyone here who felt offended, fearful, unseen, angry, or unworthy due to the sharing of my story, please know that I am deeply sorry. If I could go back, I would, but I cannot. So know that I go forth carrying these new realities in a whole new way. You see, knowing your experience, it changes mine. Asbury, we must always follow Jesus' example to hold ourselves to a higher standard of loving and serving one another. And this, this can begin with me. Asbury, we can do this work. We don't always get it right. We make mistakes. We unknowingly hurt and offend one another. However, this is no excuse. We cannot be courageous on our own strength. It is the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives that enables us to live courageously. If you're taking notes today, our first point is the whole costly courage requires the power of the Holy Spirit. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to enter into honest conversations with one another and to remain in a posture of listening instead of defensiveness. Holy Spirit courage enables us to confess when we have wronged or, or hurt someone else and enables us to hold space for one another in our lives. Here's the thing. It's kind of trendy right now to be courageous. We see examples every day of people being courageous in different kinds of ways. Courage begets courage. But for courage to be costly, it must actually cost you something. This morning, we're going to study the, the costly courage of the life of Paul in Acts 19, chapters 19 through 28. That's a lot, so hold on. We're going to get there. The beginning of these chapters tell how many came to the saving faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel spread like wildfire through the providence of Asia. As the gospel is spread, many are being healed. Acts 19, 11 through 12 reads, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and evil spirits left them. Think about that for a second. Handkerchiefs, 
Handkerchiefs and aprons were used for God's divine purpose. If handkerchiefs and aprons can be used for God's divine purpose, just think about what he can do with you and me. Handkerchiefs and aprons. While the beginning of these chapters are full of miracles, the majority of this, these chapters talk about Paul's journey challenging the status quo of culture and leaders of the day, which caused quite a disruption. These chapters read more like a suspense novel, as time and time again, Paul faces opposition of every kind. Luke uses the terms uproar and disturbance to describe how Paul, Paul's proclamation of the good news. As Matt LaRoy said during fall revival, the gospel always causes a disturbance. It upends the status quo and is the epicenter of disruption. We often do not think of the gospel as being disruptive. Or maybe better yet, we don't want the gospel to be disruptive. But in chapter 19, Paul travels to Ephesus. Ephesus, according to Matt Leroy, was the academic, economic, cultural, and religious hub of its day. It was home to the god Artemis. Paul's time in Ephesus was strategic for the kingdom because it challenged the societal systems of the day. In chapter 19, we learn about Demetrius, a silversmith, who earns a living making and selling false statues of the guard Artemis. After that, seeing people are coming to Jesus and burning their idols, Demetrius becomes concerned for his business. He stirs up a riot among the silversmiths in the day because, well, money speaks. Most of us are comfortable with the gospel until it actually costs us something. The riot caused such a disturbance in Acts 19.32 that the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, others yelling another, and some people, they didn't even know why they were shouting. Does this sound familiar? This verse could easily be said of us today. The tension in our country is palpable. Some are yelling this, some are yelling that, and most of us, well, we don't even know why we're yelling. I believe, I believe the gospel causes a great disturbance in our world today because it flies in the face of our mantra, you do you. But you doing you and me doing me is actually not biblical. As Dr. Bounds so eloquently shared on Friday by Dr. Kinlaw, the essence of sin is self-interest. There is nothing more self-focused than me doing me and you doing you. When you do you and I do me, we both lose. Costly courage, number two, costly courage requires surrender. Me not doing me and you not doing you is a courageous way to live. Through surrender, I give up my right to my life and my will. Christ now has full access to my resources, giftings, anointings to be used for his will and not my own. Even on my best days, if I only did me, I would fall short of what is actually best for me and for you. To seek only what I desire and nothing else is a miserable, lonely place to live. You see, I know because I've lived that way. I've indulged in what the world has to offer and come up wanting. I've made choices based on my own desires, and I've allowed my attitude and emotions to go unchecked. I've used the excuse, well, that's just who I am, or I'm an INFJ or an Enneagram one, one too many times. I have neglected the needs of others, ignored the cries of those around me, and turned a blind eye 
all in the name of me doing me. You see, I have found that my best life is not when I do me. My best life is in the abundant life I have found in Jesus Christ. The abundant life where my heart and mind are transformed to become more like Christ. Where I am fully known and fully loved by him. Where myself goes to die so that I might become more fully alive. Not that I become a better version of Jeannie. Not even that I become a more moral version of Jeannie. But I become the genie God designed me to be before sin ever entered into the world. A redeemed genie, transformed into the likeness of Christ. That's me doing Christ. My best life is found in community, where I am fully known and fully loved by those around me. Where I am held accountable for my actions, where I confess sin and receive grace. Where truth is spoken and grace flows freely. My best life is in the power of the Holy Spirit, where he enables me to walk in freedom and overcome the power and nature of sin, where through, the, where through his power I am able to love others as Christ has loved me. His power allows me to hold space for others in my life and in my heart. And the cries of the least, the last, and the lost draw my faith into action. Through full surrender, God has permission to use my position God has permission to use my position, my power, my privilege, and my platform for the sake of the church and the world, and not my own desires or gains. I no longer grasp for control, but invite and make room for people at the table. The places of position, power, and privilege he has given me become my place of advocacy, love, grace, and truth. I can extend grace and truth because of the one who is grace and truth. As Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Former President Jimmy Carter is quoted saying, I have one life and one chance to make it count for something. My faith demands that I do whatever I can, whenever I can, wherever I can, for as long as I can, with whatever I have to try to make a difference. Asbury, what is your place of position, power, privilege, or platform that you can surrender to Christ for the sake of the church and for the world? This place of surrender will cost you something because for courage to be costly, it must actually cost you something it's not you doing you, it's not me doing me, it's us doing Christ. Number three, costly courage requires trust. According to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, trust is assured reliance on the character, ability, strength, or truth of someone or something. Paul's assurance relied on the trusted character, ability, and truth of Christ. Since Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, where he came face to face with Jesus, his life never looked the same. He was a man zealous for God and for the good news of God's grace to be spread to both Jew and Gentile. He was a life transformed, living proof of God's grace. After the great disturbance we read about in Acts 19, Acts chapters 20 through 28, tell the story of the burden and responsibility Paul bore in bringing the good news to Jerusalem and on into Rome. 
In chapter 20, we find three verses that sum up how his journey, what his journey will entail. Acts 20, verses 22 through 24. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Knowing that hardships and prison faced him, Paul did not hesitate to continue on with the mission Jesus gave him. Even when those in the community tried to dissuade him, Paul could not be persuaded otherwise. Sometimes, people with the best of intentions do not give the best advice. But that's a sermon for a whole other day. So again, costly courage requires trust. When we do not trust in Jesus, we will rely on our own abilities and strength to accomplish the task he has called us to do. We will serve out of our own love instead of Christ, and our agenda will win instead of the good news of God's grace. I have deeply resonated with the words of Dr. Philip Bentz, who's a Wesleyan scholar on the book of Acts. The fact that Paul was facing very hard times does not refute the fact that he was doing God's will. The fact that Paul was facing hard times does not refute the fact that God was working out his plan. The fact that God appeared to be absent does not refute the fact that God was quite active. All through these trials, God was preparing the way for Paul to proclaim the gospel in Rome, the capital city of the Roman Empire. God's plan and God's power will not be defeated. I don't know about you, but when I begin to face hard times, instead of trusting in who God is, I often begin to wonder if I'm following God's will. I begin to question where he is in the situation and wonder if I've run ahead or lagged behind God's timing. Let me read those again. The fact that Paul was facing very hard times does not refute the fact that God was, that he was doing God's will. The fact that Paul was facing hard times does not refute the fact that God was working out his plan. The fact that God was, appeared to be absent does not refute the fact that God was quite active. All throughout these trials, God was preparing the way for Paul to proclaim the gospel in Rome, the capital city of the Roman Empire. God's plan, God's power, cannot be defeated. When we trust in God, when we trust in his character, ability, strength, and truth, we can walk in confidence knowing that God's plan and God's power cannot be defeated regardless of the circumstances we face. Asbury, how well do you trust? Now, my mind thinks in Likert scales. I like data, um, so we're going to do a little experiment. On a scale from one to zero, with one being, I do not trust God with any aspect of my life. Five being, I trust God in certain situations. And 10 being, I trust God completely. Don't tell anybody, this is for you and God. Where are you? Where are, what's your number? One, I don't trust God with any aspect of my life. Five would be, I trust God in certain situations. And 10, I trust God with every aspect of my life. Whatever your current number is, one, three, five, seven, ten, what would it take to move your current number just one spot to the right of that scale? Just one spot. 
To do this requires costly courage and trust. The journey of moving that one trust one notch will likely require you to look back over your life and examine the circumstances that have negatively have negatively affected your ability to trust. This heart work is not for the faint of heart. This journey may require you to forgive others that have broken your trust. This journey may lead you to come face to face with your disappointment in others, yourself, and maybe even God. Costly courage requires profound trust. What will it take for God to help you move your current number just one spot on the scale of trust? Number four, costly courage requires full obedience. When the Holy Spirit speaks to you, you are responsible for your obedience. At the end of the day, you and you alone are responsible for your yes. Each act of obedience begins with a single step. In Acts chapters 21 through 28, we have the account of Paul's journey from Jerusalem to Rome. And spoiler alert, what the Holy Spirit said would happen happened every step of the way for Paul, hardship and prison. So here's just a quick summary of what happened in these, ne in these next chapters. Upon arriving in Jerusalem, Paul is arrested and accused of bringing an unclean man into the temple. Upon arrest, Paul asked for permission to speak and to share his testimony to the crowd. Paul never misses a chance to share the testimony of God's good grace. Yet his testimony only sparked fuel on a fire and caused a disruption to occur. He was taken to be flogged, and as he was about to be flogged, he pronounced that he was a Roman citizen, not only just a Roman citizen, but one from birth, which granted him certain rights and care under Roman law. The commander overseeing the flogging wanted to find out why Paul was being accused, so the next day he brought him before the Sanhedrin. Paul's testimony divides the Sanhedrin. As Dr. Craig Keener writes, throughout Acts, Paul's message of the gospel always divides audiences, just as Jesus promised his message would do. It is the message of the hope of the resurrection of the dead that divides the Pharisees from the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. Not only does the Sanhedrin become divided, but they actually want to tear Paul apart. And so the commander drags him away and throws him in the barracks. In the barracks, we find that Jesus speaks directly to Paul in Acts 23, 11. Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you will testify about me in Rome. This word from Jesus comes at a timely time, comes timely to remind Paul to stay the course to Rome. And as the very next verses, we find that a plot of 40 men have a conspiracy to kill Paul the next day. Paul's nephew learns of this plot, and he goes to the commander. And in the cover of the night, Paul is transferred to Caesarea under the governor, Felix. Paul stands trial before Felix and is held captive for prisoner for two years. For two years, Paul again and again testifies to the good news of, God, of the gospel to Felix. Felix is then succeeded by Festus, and Paul stood trial before him as well. Paul took every opportunity to be obedient to the Holy Spirit and gave the, the Holy Spirit gave him to proclaim the good news. Paul, but before Paul is sent to Rome, Festus is visited by King Agrippa 
And Paul, again, testifies to the good news of God's grace to King Agrippa. King Agrippa makes a mockery of him and says, do you think that even in such a short time you can make me become a Christian? No matter the opportunity, big or small, Paul never hesitates to fulfill the mission Jesus gave him. Paul is obedient to the calling time and time and time again. Finally, it's decided that Paul will travel to Rome and he's put on a boat with other prisoners. The ship encounters a major storm and is shipwrecked on the island of Malta for three months. As if being shipwrecked wasn't bad enough, he gets bitten by a, a viper. I mean, can the dude catch a break? Prison, shipwreck, bitten by a viper? When Paul's body does not respond to the, this snake bite, the people on the island think that Paul is a god. Paul uses this opportunity to point them to the one true God, and many on the island are healed and cured. You see, in God's economy, no experience is wasted. God is in the business of redeeming and restoring all things. He can take the places of your deepest pain and hurt and use them for the place of your greatest authority in the kingdom of God. Only in God's economy can this happen. From Malta, Paul finally arrives in Rome, years after receiving his call to go. And next week, Greg will pick up the story from Rome and beyond in Paul's life. And the years in between Paul's call to go to Rome and the fulfillment of the call, Paul never wavered in his obedience. I wish I could say the same about myself. I often become impatient with God and try to help him out when I feel called, but things are not happening according to my timeline believing as if somehow God does not have my best interest at heart. I don't know who needs to hear this today, but I feel like someone here has heard God call you, and you're in the land of in-between. He's called you, yet the promise has not been fulfilled. Can I encourage you today? Stay the course. The enemy would love to come in and distort the truth, cause you to fear or doubt God's calling. The enemy would love for you to become impatient and try to take control of the situation. Costly courage requires obedience, and not just obedience, but full obedience to God's word, his timing, and his way. As we close today, I wonder what act of costly courage is the Holy Spirit prompting you to today? The church and the world are waiting on your act of costly courage. The world needs women and men who are equipped by the power of the Holy Spirit to love and serve those around them. The world needs your full surrender to God's will and way, where the Holy Spirit is able to use your places of surrender to be a springboard for his truth, his love, and grace. The church and the world need your trust in the character, ability, strength, and truth of the triune God. And the church and the world desperately are waiting on your obedience. There are things that God is calling you to that only you can do in this world. We are on co-mission with Christ, and we need one another's obedience and the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Maybe your act of costly courage will lead you to a place of repentance and confession. Maybe your act of costly courage will lead you to use your place of privilege and power to create spaces for the voices that are not at the table. Maybe your act of costly courage will mean that you go back home this Thanksgiving and Christmas 
and trust in the character and nature of God that he has not forgotten you or the hardships of your family. Maybe your act of costly courage is to say yes to whatever God reveals to you in this next season without hesitation, even in the face of fear. Costly courage will require the power of the Holy Spirit. Costly courage will require your full surrender. Costly courage requires trust. And costly courage will require your full obedience. I wonder today as we close, if the Holy Spirit is calling you to take a step of costly courage as an act of obedience, I wonder if you would stand. I know if I was sitting, I would be standing right now because this sermon has convicted me in my own ways that I have not been living courageously. So if the Holy Spirit has put something on your mind and and you just want to say, I can take that step of costly courage, would you stand?